folks, and welcome to episode three of the all-time best music show, Big Ads is my name, and of course tonight, today, it's not where I am, tonight uh, we're going to look at one of my favourite albums of all time. Now, for those of you that haven't heard the show, uh, essentially what we're doing is exploring some of the great music and the music that has influenced uh, me, uh, but I guess some of these albums and, and, and artists that we're talking about are some of the greatest of all time, hence the title, The All-Time Best Music Show. Uh, effectively, what it is is a, a little trip down memory lane where we're looking at um, some of the great albums, some of the great music, and I guess some of the things that um, some of the things that made it great, but also some of the ways it impacted on our life. And uh, tonight's episode is uh, inspired by a conversation I had uh, with a friend of mine uh, a couple of, about a week ago, uh, a man named Shane Peters. And uh, Shane Peters holds a pretty uh, strong place in my memory banks, <laughs> for lack of a better term, uh, because um, when now we worked out the other night, it was 30 years ago, and uh, 30 years ago, um, young Shane and I, I was 14 and he was 12, and we went to what was both of our very first concerts, and uh, the concert that we went to was, of course, the great Motley Crue. Uh, Motley, who last year released their movie, The Dirt, um, which, if you haven't watched it, it's one of the all-time great rock and roll biopics. Um, and, and for the most part, very true. Uh, there is a couple of little artistic liberties taken there, but for the most part, it's a pretty uh, accurate reflection of the band's history and, and, and the way they went through their life. Uh, they haven't really sanitised anything in that movie and they kind of gave you as much as they could a warts and all picture of what they did. But Shane and I, back in 1990, I went and saw Motley Crue on the 4th of May at the City Entertainment Centre, the old City Entertainment Centre, for those of you that are um, uh, not familiar with it. Uh, many of you, hopefully, will have experienced uh, definitely one concert or some sort of a show there. Uh, it was an arena that held about 11,000 seats here in Sydney, Australia, in the Darling Harbour area, <clears throat> just uh, next to the Chinatown re- area of, of Sydney here. And um, a vi- a lot of, I loved the Ancent. I loved the vibe of it. And um, unfortunately, a lot of people... Uh, it was often referred to as the Empty Container Centre. Uh, people believed it was sort of a cavernous kind of place. And a lot of people criticised its sound as well, but I never had an issue with that either. I, I really enjoyed the entertainment centre. So... But yes, 1990, the Motley Crue, uh, Dr. Feelgood tour, uh, back in uh, at the Sydney Entertainment Centre, and Craig and I, Craig, Shane and I, Craig, Shane and I went and watched this show, and uh, we were talking the other night about the fact that our parents, who were uh, sort of dating at the time, took us to see this show and left us there. Didn't come in with us. Um, they left us there. <laughs> left. How irresponsible were they in the late 80s, early 90s where they just left a 14-year-old and a 12-year-old at a Motley Crue concert? And the funny thing about the show was it was actually really interesting because um, there, uh, there was a sort of a thing that used to happen. I don't know that it happens necessarily now, but there was sort of, I guess, two generations in music, and sort of an older generation and a younger generation. And one of the things that the older generation did was kind of take the younger generation under their wing a little bit. There was a... A sense of, I guess, camaraderie that we um, we all felt. And we all sort of, we, you know, we we didn't. It wasn't like a an us against them thing. It was a, you know, you're, we're we've we've been there, we've done that. We're the older rockers, 
and we're going to watch these young kids come through. We're going to help them come through. We're going to help them understand. And I can still remember, and um, and not that we promote any of this kind of stuff, but I can still remember going into a bathroom and seeing somebody, um, <laughs> seeing somebody snorting cocaine off the countertop, and just having uh, you know older guys in the room going, oh, "Don't, don't, boys, don't look at that. Don't look at that, boys. Don't look at that. Just come over here with us. Stay away from that kind of stuff. Don't worry about him. Don't worry about him." And just, you know, but but guys come along going, you know, good on your kids. Look at you guys, you know, you're young and you're rocking and good for you. And um, and that kind of extended into when I started to go to big day outs. And and for those of you that were were in mosh pits back in the uh, the early to mid-90s, you know, there were rules and there were there was regulations and there was an, an uh, even though it was disorderly, there was an order to it. We looked after each other. We, we, we kept an eye on each other, you know, we, um, rightly or wrongly, it might sound sexist, but... And we looked after girls in the pit. We didn't, you know, if people went down in the pit, we stopped and waited for them to get up. It wasn't about getting stupid and, and trying to hurt each other. It was just a different world back then. But, um, but yeah, so there we were at Motley Crue, um, 1990 Entertainment Centre. And it was my first concert. And uh, I probably could find the track listing somewhere if, it, if I really wanted to because there's some, um, you know, just some people out there that remember this stuff or, or know this stuff. But... I just remember it being one of the most phenomenal concerts I've seen, but loud. Like, I walked out of there with my ears ringing. I couldn't hear. I can still remember my mum trying to talk to me after the show, and I just couldn't hear her. I could not hear her. Mum, I can't hear you. I was, really, I was actually scared that I'd permanently damage my hearing. And um, for those of you that remember the old incense, there was a sort of the artist entrance at the, entrance at the back of the thing. There wasn't like a, you know, in, in I guess the modern arenas, there's sort of a, a parking bay where the buses come in and the, the the artists can get out without being exposed to the public. But the entertainment center just had like a back door area, and um, and their, their their backstage area had like huge doors that opened up that you could load in on. And then there was a sort of a back door to the um, the dressing room area. And and interestingly enough, a few years later, I um I went and was a stage crew in a rockerstead for for school. And so I was, I was, I, I technically performed on that stage, and I was really quite impressed at the fact that I was, you know, performing in the same arena as, as these rock gods that I'd been and see. But, um, but sitting in the, you know, so being in that backstage area it was kind of cool, and you kind of got a sense of, you know, what had happened in there. But, um, remember standing at the back, in, standing in the car park that overlooked the back door, and waiting with our parents for probably an hour, at least an hour after the show. Um, for the, the the boys and the crew to come out, and they did, and they were very cool, and they waved, and they you know stopped and talked to people that were close down into the ground, and and at the time um, the band Skid Row was touring Australia, and I, I remember seeing members of the band Skid Row, Sebastian Bach, and 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 the rest of the guys come into the backstage area, so you know, but the, the, I don't know that it would have been a massive party scene in there. I'm sure there would have been some interesting stuff happening, but um, uh, I guess that was the time. And, and the interesting thing about Motley Crue at the time was they were um, they were they were sober. So this this album, Doctor Feelgood, um, was their fifth studio album, and many people say it's their best studio album. Um, some people put Shout at the Devil, which is number two on the list there, um, but uh, you know, Doctor Feelgood, um, they'd had a, a long, uh, an interesting history with drugs and alcohol. Uh, Vince Neil, the, the lead singer, of course, as uh, portrayed in the film, um, was involved in a motor vehicle accident, 
with a, uh, a man named Nicholas Dazzle. Um, what was his last name? Ringley. Have to look at that. Dazzle from Hanoi Rocks, and uh, and he um, and sadly was killed in that car accident. Vince uh, did, I think, nearly three weeks in jail for vehicular manslaughter, which doesn't seem a lot really, but um, seems like a really low. But but uh, and and in the meantime, uh, Nikki Six had um, had a heroin overdose and was had to. And again, this was portrayed in the film, um, and Dazzle Bingley. I think it was anyway, um, <laughs> but six was uh, six was uh, died. He was technically dead, and we had to be a re- uh, revive with adrenaline shots to the heart, and hence the title kicks up my heart. And the story goes that that Nicky Six actually kind of wrote the song on a, on an acoustic guitar and, and liked it, but didn't feel like he could take it to the band. And then eventually, when they were recording Doctor Feelgood, they were sort of looking for the the big breakout song and Six said, well, I've got this song that I've, I've played and uh, he's famously said that um, he, he went and got, um, he, he died from a drug overdose, it was heroin overdose, he got revived, um, went home and when went and just got high again and um, and took drugs again and then ultimately uh, the whole band decided to get sober. Um, they took, um, they, they wrote the song Kickstart My Heart, as I said, Six took it to the band and they said, you know, we like this, we can do something with it. Um, and, of course, if you've watched a, a sporting compilation, a motor car race, um, um, Dingley, Nicholas Razzle Dingley. I knew I'd get the name eventually. I didn't Google that, folks, I remembered that. Um, he was the, the, the drummer from Hanoi Rocks, the British rock band that was killed in the car accident with Vince Neil. Um, yeah, so they if you've watched a car racing or a sporting montage in the last 15, 20 years, um, you've definitely seen Kickstart My Heart. You've heard the song. You know the song. It's an, it's it's still actually a really cool song. Film clip is amazing. It was made at the Whiskey A Go-Go um, uh, nightclub. Um, and at the beginning of the film clip, actually, you, you hear, um, I think Vince goes, well, here we are, back home, sweet home. So this album, uh, recorded in... In 88, 89, recorded with Bob Rock. And funnily enough, Motley Crue actually went... Motley, Motley Crue actually inspired the Black Album. Now, in the last episode, we talked about the year 1991 when the Black Album by Metallica was released. Uh, Motley Crue actually inspired the Black Album. And the inspiration for the Black Album came from the fact that Lars, uh, Lars Ehrlich, the drummer from Metallica, heard Dr. Feelgood by Motley Crue and loved the drum sound and went looking for the producer, which was Bob Rock. And they, they hired Bob Rock purely on the basis that, that Lars, and if you're familiar with Lars Ehrlich at all, you'll understand he's Lars is one of the great egos in rock and roll. Rightly so, because, I mean, his band is probably one of the biggest bands in the world ever. Um, but Lars did it based purely on the fact that it was a great drum sound, and that was that was the point. Um, so they, they, they took Bob Rock into the studio and they recorded this album. And as I said, they were completely sober for the first time in pretty much their career. Um, they had uh, released, um, well, I thought Girls, Girls, Girls was a pretty album. Theatre of Pain was a, a punish to listen to. <laughs> had a couple of decent songs, but they relied on a ballad and, a, as they said, a ballad and a, a cover version. But they go in and record Dr. Feelgood with Bob Rock. Uh, the first time they'd done it sober, and if, coincidentally, it was their the first album they ever recorded that went to number one on the Billboard charts. Um, uh, 
and in the only album to claim that position. They've never, ever had another number one album. Um, it was also one of the last albums they recorded with Vince Neil before they got rid of him and um, replaced him with John Karabi. And, uh, you know, it was a few years then before Vince would come back in 97 to record Generation Swine. But as I said, this album is one of the great albums. Now, even just have a listen to this um, singles, just the singles, five singles from that. Dr. Feelgood, which was the uh, the lead-off single back in late 89, Kickstart My Heart a couple of months later, then Without You, which is the uh, the mandatory power ballad that, that glam rock bands released in the 80s and the 90s. Uh, Don't Go Over Mad, Just Go Away. And then, uh, one, and then of course, Same Old Situation, which is, a, again, a fantastic song, but a song that... Um, one has one, another mandatory thing for 80s rock bands, most rock bands, is to release a live film clip, you know, a film clip of life on the road, some backstage shots, a bus going down. Motley's done a couple of these. Home Sweet Home by Motley Crue is one of those as well. Um, like I said, it is one of the great albums of all time. And um, that even just those those five singles, but... The track list itself is actually really cool as well, and there is some really good stuff on there. Um, Rattlesnake Shake, which is, I think, uh, one of the most underrated songs on there. Um, and and But again, an album pretty much focused around these guys getting laid and, and sort of some fairly thinly veiled double entendres like um, Sticky Sweet, She Goes Down, and things like that. So if you ever get a chance to have a listen to Kicks, uh, Kickstart My Heart, if you ever get a listen chance to listen to this album, when you listen to it, listen to it in the context of glam rock. It's it's not it's not Pet Sounds by the Beach Boys. It's not you know Nirvana. Never mind. It's not an. It, it is a very good, um, very good version of a glam rock album, and and a band that was starting to transition into a bit more of a rock and roll band, um, if that makes sense. Motley Crue, again, if you listen to their very early stuff, Nikki Six always claimed Motley Crue was a punk band that became a rock band. And if you actually go back and listen to that early, that very early stuff of Motley Crue, you can hear the punk rock influence in there. You can hear the drums. You can hear the, the kind of the chanty kind of things. But... Again, in their life, they transferred or transformed, I should say, into a into a definitely into a rock band. But um, as you listen to the album, there's a couple of things to kind of know about this album. Now, the title track is "Doctor Feelgood," and uh, it's a apparently there was a very different version of "Doctor Feelgood." I haven't heard that other version, uh, but there was a very different version of a um of that song. The song is effectively about a drug dealer in LA and there's some speculation that it was about um Nikki Six's drug dealer. Um it could or may or may not have been that. Um but the original Doctor Feelgood was a fellow named Max Jacobson. Doctor Mac ja- Max Jacobson. And um uh, Jacobson was um pretty well known for pretty much being a a doctor who was a drug dealer to the stars. He would um, administer amphetamines to many of his prominent clients, including um, the Kennedys, Mar- Mon- Marilyn Monroe, and he was Elvis's doctor as well. And we all know what happened there. Um, uh, but he would eject them with amphetamine. And um, so Dr. Jacobson eventually lost his license, but he was the uh, original Dr. Feelgood. Um, <clears throat> as we said, though, this album 
uh, I guess, um, was a bit of a, it was a bit of a, a warning against drug use. And again, definitely a band who at that point in their life were, had struggled with their addictions. Um, Nikki, I guess, if, you, if you've read The Dirt, and I've read probably the first half of it, and you've watched the movie, you'll kind of understand, my opinion is that Nikki's kind of masking a mental health issue. You know, he's kind of, this, as, as I think happens sometimes with, with drug addiction, but he is definitely trying to chase away some demons. Um, like we said, there's a couple of lines in there then that actually reference their past, and particularly that song, Don't Go Away Mad, um, where there's a line that goes, I knew it all along, I'd ha- I knew it all along, I'd have to write this song, too young to fall in love, guess we knew it all along. And and I guess that is, that's one of their early songs, too young to fall in love. And I guess that's kind of saying like, man, you know, maybe we're a little too young for this fame, maybe... You know, you got to consider that when Motley got big, I think Tommy was about 19 um, at the time. Tommy Lee, the drummer, I should say, for those of you that don't know. So there's this band who had this fame and fortune. And, you know, from what I understand in the movie The Dirt, some of what you see in terms of the drugs and the alcohol, that really was, in some ways, the tip of the iceberg. Um but yeah, so I guess they got they touched on that part of their history in that song. Uh, in 2008, Nike actually also released a Dunk High Sneaker based on the colours of the Dr. Feelgood album. Um, a lime green with darker green and um, snake print and red accents. So that very interesting looking shoe. And um, we'll pop a post picture of that up on the, uh, up on the Facebook page so everyone can see that. The other thing about this album was it is a bit of an all-star album. Um, you had uh, Stephen Tyler from Aerosmith um, singing vocals on the track Sticky Sweet, which again, as I said, a not too um, subtle nod to, you know, females. And Cheap, cheap Tricks, Robert Sanders sang on the song She Goes Down. <laughs> That's really not the thinly barred at all. It was their first number one album, as we said, their only number one album, and one of the very first albums to include Vince Neil on guitar as well. And um, at the very end of the song Slice Your Pie, there's a little melody um, that is a nod to the Beatles, the Beatles track, I Want You, She's So Heavy. Um, Like I said to you, it it is one of the great rock albums of all time. Um, and, And for me, the thing that it did... So I, I spoke at the very opening about my friend Shane, and um, as I said, we've known each other for 30 years now. We haven't even really spoken in that length of time, and, and for those of you that are um, in and around the Sydney area, um, up and down the coast here, Shane actually performs in one of the great uh, Blues Brothers tribute acts called the Blues Brothers, Re- Blues Brothers Rebooted, and uh, does some really cool stuff. So if you ever get a chance to see him, go and see them. Um, that it's a, it's a, you know, Blues Brothers just classic anyway. Um, but Shane, as I touched on, Shane, um, his dad and my mum dated very briefly in the um, the late eighties, early nineties, and uh, Shane kind of introduced me to Motley Crue. Now I was in that space anyway. I was listening to Motley. I was listening to um, had Poison and and Bon Jovi and bands like Guns N' Roses. I think everyone was kind of listening to them at the time. 
but he introduced me to Motley Crue, and it was love at first sight. And I've lost counting the amount of times that we watched the Motley Crue uncensored uh, home video. Um, for the kids out there, and and some of the adults, remember when bands used to release these videos, and they'd usually contain they'd be about half an hour to an hour long. They contain you know three or four of their videos. This one was the first three albums from um, um to you know. Uh, right up until Theatre of Pain. And um, so Too Fast for Love, Scout at the Devil and um, Theatre of Pain. But those first three albums were brilliant. Uh, that that I should say that Uncensored video was brilliant because it kind of was interspersed then with um, film clips and yeah, pictures of Vince Neil in a limousine with a jacuzzi on the back, in the back of the jacuzzi with two girls. You know, that's incredible. Um, six in a Corvette. Um, Tommy Lee on a bike. I think they were getting tattooed at one point. They're in a studio talking about these things. And yeah, it was just this really... Um, I loved them. I loved them to start with. Um, I wanted to be Nikki Six. I wanted to play bass. I realised I didn't have any musical ability. I went to try and learn bass to try to teach me guitar. I was like, no, I don't want to do that. Um, Shane and I, I can remember, and for those of you out there that are that are music fans, and you probably did some stupid shit back in the day. Shane and I used to draw text um, text to tattoos. Now, the interesting thing was that sleeve tattoos were not at all a thing back then, and uh, but Nikki and Tommy both had sleeve tattoos. Um, you know, we're talking in the late 80s, 30 years before sleeves were, uh, even anyone had sleeves, and rock stars were the only ones that had sleeves. But Tommy and Nikki had sleeves, and uh, Shane and I used to draw sleeves on each other, and pretend while our parents were out, you know, at dinner or movies or wherever they went. We don't, I don't know, don't care. <laughs> but we would listen. We would we would be in my dining room with the music turned up as loud as we could because that's where the good stereo was pretending to be. You know, he'd be Vince because he was actually a pretty good singer then and I'd be Nicky and uh, we'd pretend to do it. We'd have concerts and all sorts of stuff. Um, and so it was just this, it was... You know, every, look, if you if you didn't, as a teenager, stand in front of a, a mirror, mirror and pretend to be a rock star with a tennis racket or a cricket bat or something like that, then you, you just didn't live life. Um, but yeah, we, so I, I've, I kind of fell in love with them. And uh, I remember for my 14th birthday, my mum asked me what I wanted, and I said I wanted Motley Crue tickets. And interestingly, she got it. Um, she got me those Motley Crue tickets. And it was, uh, you know... Like, I still don't believe that she did it. Um, I watched Motley, I lived Motley, I breathed Motley, I listened to their music, I loved them, I had posters all over my wall. I lived in a Dr. Feelgood and Girls, Girls, Girls t-shirt for about three years. I literally wore these things out. Um, I watched everything that they did, I recorded everything that they did, I loved everything that they did when they came to Australia. Every interview I recorded on video, um, it's... You know, it that it it's. I I wonder if people listening to music today will have a band dominate them the way they did. And and I mean, you know, we don't have great music shows on TV anymore, really. I mean, there's rage, but we don't have. You know, we had video hits back then, and we had, um, and and these guys they were on everything. I mean, they were on. There was a show at the time called Countdown Revolution which was supposed to be like a reboot of the old Australian classic music show Countdown. And um, they were on that for an episode. They appeared on current affairs shows. They were on everything. Um, 
yeah, so it was it was a time in my life that I'm really quite proud of and a time in my life that I really loved. And I was I was talking to and I think I might have said this in the last episode, I was talking to Shane last week about this and I, I sort of went away from Motley Crew. When I found um when I found Nirvana, I I lost um I lost my way with Motley Crew. Because to me in the late night or in the early nineties, um the way I guess I listened to music and I think everyone listened to music, you you loved a band and if people didn't love that band, they were kind of like the enemy. You know, people loved Metallica or people loved Guns N' Roses and people loved, um, you know, I loved Motley Crue. Um, and so when Nirvana came out, they just took everything with them. Um, they, I think within 12 months, hair metal was dead. Um, the bubble had burst. And, and the, the funny thing is so many of these bands now still touring still playing to pretty decent-sized crowds in the States, there's their opportunity to do that because there's so many places that they can play. Um, but bands like Warrant and Skid Row um, and, and, and pre-COVID, I mean, Motley Crue was supposed to go on tour with Def Leppard, Poison, Joan Jett, a big stadium tour. Um, they, of course, signed a contract allegedly a couple of years ago to say that they would never tour again and then promptly blew up the contract... <laughs> and decided to tour again. But, um, you know, you, you, when Nirvana came around, it, it was kind of like you were obliged to not like the stuff you used to like anymore. So I, I left Motley Crue, um, and I left them for a good nine or ten years. Um, never sort of listened to them much. And I think in around 2001... I want to say that um, that Motley Crue came out with a, a double CD best of album called Red, Ro- Red, White and Crew. And um, they did a couple of really interesting things. The original version of Home Sweet Home back in the, the Theatre of Pain album was recorded on a, an organ and they re-recorded the organ parts on a piano and remixed the song with the piano versus a, an organ. And so... They had that on there and they had a bunch of other things. Um, they, you know, went back to their punk roots on the Decade of Decadence album, recorded a version of Anarchy in the, Anarchy in the UK um, by the Sex Pistols. But I, I found Motley Crue again in the early 2000s. Uh, I listened to the album and um, and that song Too Fast for Love is a, is a belter of a song. I, I got fell in love with um, uh, some of those early... Motley Crue hits again. You know, a song like On With The Show um, from their first album, you know, is just a great song to listen to. Um, And I I fell in love with Dr. Feelgood again. I fell in love with the song Dr. Feelgood. It sounds really cool, you know, and Rat Tail Jimmy was a second-hand hood, deals out of Hollywood. Had a 64 Chevy with a prime of flames traded for the powdered goods, you know. Um, 
you know, it's a it, the cadence of that song is really cool. The drums at the start and the guitar are really cool. That rhythm section of of Lee and uh, Six, and the secret to that rhythm section was that those guys they loved each other. They were best friends, and they were so tight as a rhythm section. And and Motley as a band were were a gang. You know, it was well known in the LA music scene. If you fought one of them, you fought them all. Um, and again, famously kind of portrayed in the in the movie. The dirt where they went to war with the crowd, um, but you know, I, I I fell away from them for a while, and I came back to Motley Crue because at the very core of who they are was a group that was heavily influenced by punk rock, um, heavily influenced by classic seventies rock like Kiss and Aerosmith. Um, Nikki Sixes grew up in in Seattle, by the way, um, so there's another tick on Seattle's box and a band that took the best of both of those musical worlds merged them together released a fantastic um, you know first up album lost their way through the, the mid to late eight, uh, the mid the mid 80s with a, with a song like uh, with an album like Theatre of Pain um, came back a little bit with Girls 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 and then really really reasserted themselves as a as a musical force with Dr. Feelgood. And I'd say to you now that that 12 months between August 89 and August 90, when Motley Crue toured the world and played to a million people, um, probably was the pinnacle of their career. But fortunately for them, they've been able to continue uh, to create fantastic music, um, albeit separately sometimes, um, Vince, even after Motley Crue stopped touring, allegedly, <laughs> um, continued to tour as Vince Neil with the Vince Neil Band and continued to play Motley Crue songs. Tommy has produced music and has produced really creative music with some of the best, um, some of the best new musicians in the world. Uh, Nikki Six, of course, had a numerous side projects, including Six AM and um, The Brides of Destruction with Tracy Guns from LA Guns, and we spoke about those guys last time. And is this incredibly creative man. He is a photographer, he's a playwright, he's produced a, um, a, written a couple of best-selling books now, including his book The Heroin Diaries, which chronicles his time um, as a drug addict. Uh, he um, is... Douglas Booth, who was the actor that portrayed him in The Dirt, um, when they met, when he met him, he said, you know, I met this really nice, gentle, kind, loving man. And I really struggled to kind of um, relate him back to the Nikki Six that I was playing. And the director, Jeff Tremaine, who was famous for the Jackass um, series of uh, TV series and movies, said to him, you have to remember that the Nikki Six you're playing is a very different man. It's a, a, not the same person. The Nikki Six today is, a, is, a, is an older man. You know, he's, they're all in their you know, late 50s, early 60s. And this is a, a man who is now, you know, much more settled. But, yeah, just creating really fantastic art and writing, um, you know, hosting radio shows and writing really brilliant um, books and doing plays. And of course, um, I think a couple of years ago, um, produced uh, was on a, a sort of a, one of those um, think tanky kind of things that they have around, you know, the opiate problem in America, 
Um, and so it was, you know, there he is sitting there with surgeon generals and doctors and professors and, and there's Nikki Six from Motley Crue. Um, you know, heavily tattooed, you know, rock and roll outlaw um, singing, uh, talking about, you know, the, the, the ills of drug use. But I, I guess what you see is a band that weathered the storm, a band that um, weathered a couple of storms, um, created a, a fantastic, had this fantastic moment in time in the in the late 80s and the early 90s with Dr. Feelgood, um, have left a legacy, um, have certainly left a legacy, um, have created, continue to create uh, great music um, in various, like I said, in various forms. And, and I guess at the end of the day, um, if nothing else, they gave us Kickstart My Heart. And if you can't listen to that song, uh, and feel like you want to go and run through walls, then there is something seriously wrong with you. It is uh, one of the all-time great songs. So uh, we're going to put a we're going to put a kickstart my heart up as uh, as our song of the the week here on uh, the all-time best music show. Uh, but please, uh, when you get a chance, uh, if you can download it, if you can stream it, or even if you want to, you probably be able to listen to it on YouTube somewhere. Take an hour, or take 45 minutes, go for about 45 minutes, take 45 minutes and listen to Dr. Feelgood by Motley Crue, our album of the episode, here on the all-time best music show. And just think of a 14-year-old me, 30 years ago, at the entertainment centre, surrounded by rock and roll debauchery with a 12-year-old kid, no parental supervision, just me, the crew, and... uh, and and a little slice of heaven. <laughs> Until next time, so folks, uh, thank you for listening, and uh, we'll see you real soon. This is the all-time best music show. Big answer to my name. <laughs>